Moncrief on News Talk. As he says himself, if you read his CV, you might think he'd made it up. He went from being one half of the 80s duo The Communards to a beloved BBC radio presenter and then a vicar. And that's as well as being a gay icon and a beloved figure in the UK. His new show, Borderline National Trinket, is coming to Liberty Hall in Dublin on January the 25th. Richard Coles, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sean. How old were you when you first moved to London? And when you look back at that person now, how would you describe them? Well, I was 18 and I was incredibly naive. I stopped, stepped off a train at St Pancras Station and I walked out into the streets of King's Cross, which was a very uh, um, gritty place at that time, completely unaware of what was going on. And then gradually my eyes were opened to the reality of life in a big city and I began to find my feet mm. and find my way to a generation of gay runaways including Jimmy Somerville, who I you know, was later to be in pop music with and my friend and inspiration in life. And that was me uh, living a new, livable life. And it was good fun. Yeah. And, and is that why you went to London? Yeah, I realised that I was quite a timid person by nature. And normally I wouldn't sort of do risky adventures, I think. But I kind of realised that if I didn't find a livable life, I would wither and die or something. So I knew it was happening in London. And so to London I went, mm-hmm. and and it was the right choice. Yeah, this uh, this was Thatcher's Britain, though, so there were kind of battles to be fought. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a time of enormous change. Margaret Thatcher was there at the House of Parliament, her first government, but just in power, busy changing our lives. But then, on you know, opposite the House of Parliament, County Hall, Red Ken Livingstone was there. He was also changing our lives. And in between it, it was a sort of churn, battlefield of ideas and values and stuff. Yeah. And it was very exciting and sometimes very frightening and sometimes, well, creative. Yes. You and Jimmy, though, your backgrounds would have been quite dissimilar. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I would ever have met someone like Jimmy if we hadn't had this one common purpose, which was to find the livable life. And I mean, I think I'd known Jimmy for six months before I understood a word he said as well. So that was quite remarkable <laughs> that we did become such good friends. But, but they, you know, opposites attract. Yes. And uh, and I think I sort of thrilled to Jimmy's his extraordinary self-possession, his courage, his undimmed activism. And he kind of woke me up and kind of, he did lots of things for me, really. Yeah. And at the time, in uh, before... Um... Uh, before the communards, was it, was music part of your ambition, or or did you know exactly what it was you wanted to do? Yeah, it was. But my ambition was to be the world's greatest composer. Uh, so I was I was a chorister when I was a kid. So I grew up in classical music and I played classical music. And I wrote a letter to Benjamin Britten, who was then the most celebrated composer in Britain. And uh, saying how much I like that. And then someone from the Britain Foundation got in touch with me and said they'd found it in the archive and they sent me a copy of it. And in it, I said, dear um, Sir Benjamin, you are my third favourite composer. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't quite such a well-chosen, maybe expressing myself as I thought. Oh, my gosh. And so when 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 Jimmy was involved uh, in Bronski Beat, uh, were you involved musically? I came into Bronski Beat to play saxophone just before the end of Bronski Beat. Ah. So uh, so I was there just playing saxophone as a hired hand. Mm. And then Jimmy and I left and formed the Communards as a joint enterprise, really, to yeah. bring down Margaret Thatcher with pop music. I've, you know? Well, a, a very laudable aim. Uh, why did Bronski Beat break up? 
Well, it was Jimmy, really. I mean, Bronski beat had this kind of extraordinary instant success, a measure of the brilliance of the band. And it was one of those kind of like lottery win transformations of a life. And Jimmy, I think, found that quite disorienting. He didn't particularly like posh hotels. He didn't particularly like swanky restaurants. He liked his friends and his world. And I think he wanted to feel that he had a bit more control over his life than that instant pop success allowed. But then actually we became even more successful than Bronsky B because you can't keep a good man down. And uh, people just kept liking Jimmy more and more. And is it fair to say, though, that when, you know, when uh, um, the communards took off, and that was pretty quickly as well, that that it affected your relationship with each other? Oh, yeah. I mean, anyone who's a sort of uh, musician-singer combination, there are sort of tensions built into that. And the other thing about I mean, you know, we were we were good friends, I think, and worked together creatively well because we were so different. But it also meant we didn't really have a common language to resolve differences because I always did sort of, diplomacy and jimmy only did nuclear war really so uh we we did have our moments but that was inevitable and of course also the 80s was turbulent it was the best of times for us but it was the worst of times hiv came along and decimated our world Mm. so it was not all it was i mean it's a terrible cliche it really was a bit of a roller coaster yeah fair amount of drugs as well yes an unusual amount of drug taking for a Vicar of the Church of England, but there you go, a previous life. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, yeah. Um, you know, it was in a pop band of the 1980s. It would have been rude not to. Really. Yeah. And d- is it true you did try to buy an aeroplane? Well, yeah, I did. I'd forgotten about it. I did buy a speedboat, but I don't know what became of that. But my friend Billy and I went to the airport to buy an aeroplane, but the man wouldn't let us in because we forgot to put on our shirts. <laughs> Is that a prerequisite to buy a plane? I didn't know that. Uh, I would have thought. Well, well, I think if you are going to buy a plane, you're probably a more persuasive customer if you have remembered to put on a shirt. <laughs> yes. So then, uh, after the communards uh, uh, broke up, did you have a sense of direction after that? Was there a little bit of a fallow period there in your life? Not a fallow period. It was a very rich period, actually. But it was. It. I mean, it's an odd thing because if you're in a pop band, it's a bit like being a footballer. You know, you you sort of retire at in your youth and then you've got to think well what am I going to do with the rest of my life and gradually I mean I never particularly wanted to be a pop star Sean it just sort of happened because Jimmy hauled me into it really which I'm very grateful but I always had different ambitions really so I just my life kind of settled more into the pattern I'd been expecting I think yeah and when did now? And I know in your family history that you know the the, the uh, clergy people in your family history was, was was did you rediscover God or discover God for the first time? Was it that oh, cliche epiphany moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I knew where it was because I was a chorister when I was a kid, so I grew up with it. It was part of my daily diet, but I never believed any of it at all. I thought it was self evidently the case that it was a fiction and a fairy tale. But then when I needed it. I knew where to go and I connected with it again and I found that it was much richer and more challenging and more mysterious than I thought. And then now I realise, of course, it had just been waiting for me to come through the door and eventually I did. Yeah, and what what, what was happening in your life where you felt you needed it? Well, it was the turbulence of the 1980s, the sort of transformations of success. But really, I think it was the confrontation with mortality and that was because of the AIDS crisis, because I I think nothing changes people like confronting mortality for the first time. And for lots of us that comes 
for demographic reasons, you know, towards the end of our lives, perhaps. Mm. But if you're unlucky enough to get caught up in a pandemic or a war, it comes a bit earlier. And if it does, for some of us, that starts a line of questioning that takes you to religions because religions have been reflecting on that stuff for a long time. Yeah. So then like, I think it was in your, uh, still in your, we still in your 20s when you started studying theology. Just about, yeah, I was just 29, I think. So I was just heading into my 30s, which was my favourite decade so far. Yeah, and of course, all the BBC work, which people would be very familiar with. And I was reading about about you, and I want to thank you for this sentence, because you don't get to read it very often. On graduation, he moved back to his home county of Northamptonshire, where he took up dogging. Uh, uh, That's, uh, uh, well done. Yeah, well, well, thank you. Yeah, it wasn't a... I mean, it wasn't quite that. I think it was a refinement of dogging. It was more casual encounters in mm. laybys. So the sort of more theatrical end of it was not so much part of it, but it was the case, actually. Um, again, an unusual element in the story, perhaps, of a parson of the Church of England. But I mean, I wouldn't be the first person who had sinned boldly, I think, mm. to find his way into ministries and, and, but that period when you were in uh, when you were dogging is it true that you felt quite good about yourself uh, as a result yes of that? yes i did i found it rather bucked me up actually and also i think i i think for lots of gay men of my age and background you grow up thinking that your body and its desires is a problem and it's very difficult to shake that off if that's in you and I did find that that experience, I mean, it wasn't dogging, it was just lots of casual sexual encounters would be more accurate, um, with poor cover. Um, I think what that taught me was that I was not as undesirable as I feared I was. And that was actually probably quite good for me. I don't recommend it, though, I have to say. Why not? Well, because it's risky, I think, and because I hope most people would be able to come to terms with the reality of their own bodies without having to do that, really. Yeah. Then you became a vicar. Uh, uh, and yes. Then, uh, uh, and then, then of course, you, uh, you met David. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, he also a vicar, is is that the case? Yes, yeah. also a vicar, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was a medic originally. He was a nurse uh, who worked in A&E, and then he became a, a, he became a cleric. Yeah, and how long were you together for then? Twelve years. All that time, though, I assume there was a tension uh, um, that the I assume the two of you felt, given what the rules of the Church of England were. Well, we didn't really give that much thought. We were very happy together. I had never had a moment's doubt that God was happy that we were together. The Church of England and its regulations had a problem with it, but I just kept that stuff at bay, really. Yeah. The... But at the same time, you're kind of, if you work for an organization or you represent an organization and it has some regulations that kind of make you less equal to, you know, the other pigs, uh, um, uh, to paraphrase Orwell, that that must grate a bit. Well, it does. In fact, more than grates, it becomes a burden that becomes intolerable, or it did for me eventually. But, I mean, the important thing was, was that in spite of the Church of England's persistence in uh, not feeling able to grant equality and dignity to all its members in that way. I never had any doubts that it was fine. So it wasn't something that was a kind of ontological problem for me. It was just a question of management, really. And I've never felt, I think it's daft, I don't, why should people be bound by laws that are unjust and stupid? It just never was something that morally troubled me very much. Uh, do you think the, the Church of England will change? 
Yes. Whether it'll change for the better or the worse is hard to say. It's a very live subject at the moment, and sometimes it feels three steps forward, four steps back. But I think it will change if it wants to continue to be what it is when it's at its most useful, which is a sort of national institution that tries to be in step with and to offer something to everybody, whether they like it or not. I mean, we could retreat and become a little kind of club of the righteous, but I don't want to be part of the club of the righteous. I want to be with a church which is out there in the world trying to help people live lives, you know? Yeah. Today, as I'm sure you know, there's a COVID inquiry going on and Boris Johnson yeah. is going to be appearing in front of us. The, 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 the London you first came to, Thatcher's London, and I, and I suppose the Britain you see today, has it improved? Has it gone kind of in a loop to some extent? Well, I'd say it was a mixed picture, actually. In some ways, it's immeasurably better. I think if you're an LGBT person, you're probably living your best life possible at the moment in Britain, mm. all things considered, if you see what I mean. I think if you're a poor person, it's getting tougher and tougher. The disparities in wealth between rich and poor are widening, and that seems to me to be egregious. Uh, our political culture is ridiculous. Um, lots of people of goodwill doing lots of creative things, but trying to see that manifesting itself in government at the moment is a bit of a stretch. And, you know, the problems that face us as individuals, as societies, as a nation, as the world are so enormous. The horrors that we're seeing enacted around us as we speak are so terrible that it would be very easy to feel defeated. But we must not be. We must live in hope and we must stand up and face forward and embrace as much as we can with each other and do what we can to make the world livable. Mm. Uh, Richard, my final hackneyed uh, obvious question. Uh, you and Jimmy, are, are, you know, you've, you're, you're, you have a good relationship now. Any chance yes. that you, you might appear on a stage at any point? I don't think so. I think both of us would feel, I can't speak for Jimmy, but I can speak for myself and say that I think what we did, I liked it then. And I think to try to recreate it now would probably take something from it. So I will spare the world that, I think. Uh, but you can see Richard Coles, though, at Liberty Hall on January the, the 25th, Borderline National Trinket. Uh, <laughs> typical understatement is the name of that show. Richard Coles, thanks a million. Thank you, Sean. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.